Hello and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. Feed-based management research into forages, soils and nutrition is key to ensure that our industry remains viable into the future. Agriculture Victoria's Research Director, Professor Joe Jacobs, is our guest on this episode, talking about the Dairy Feed-Based Research Program. He joins Dairy Australia's Liz Mann to discuss the practical findings from the past six years of research, in addition to what is planned and the potential outcomes farmers can expect from the next phase of research, which commenced in July 2023. Okay, hello everyone. And welcome, Joe, to this episode of The Dairy Pod. It's great to have you here. Um, it's great to be able to sit down with you and spend time talking about what's been happening in the area of feed-based research and then what's going to be happening. You are the Director for Animal Production Sciences within Agriculture Victorian Research Group and based at the Ellen Bank Smart Farm. Um, what does that mean you're actually doing and, and how does your role with this project, these projects look like? That's a really good question, Liz, because sometimes I'm not sure what I do either. <laughs> but as you yeah. say, uh, I, I lead and manage AgVic's applied research program for dairy and the livestock industries and also manage both the Ellen Bank and Hamilton Smart Farms. As such, my days can vary enormously from working directly within project activities, occasionally being allowed out to actually work on the projects, chairing meetings, working with stakeholders, working with other parts of AgVic and government, right through to preparing research proposals or even providing briefing material as far up the chain as the minister. So there's a fair bit involved. But at the end of the day, this isn't necessarily about what I do. So let's get back to the important thing. Let's talk <laughs> dairy feed base. Look, the, the whole team has done an amazing job over the past 12 months. You know, I think back and think not only have they been wrapping up the current, well, I say current, it finished on the 30th of June, dairy feed-based program. And by that, I mean finishing experiments, processing a multitude of samples collected during those experiments, getting samples analysed, undertaking statistical analysis, preparing publications, and even working with DA staff on various articles for the industry. Industry. Oh, yeah, plus entertaining groups of both Ellen Bank and Hamilton. <laughs> but then also at the same time to develop up a new program, which in many ways is very different to its predecessor. Dairy Feedback, so not everyone is going to be aware of that project. Um, and we will talk about the new one. And, and like you and I, we're recording this sort of mid-July. Um, so the new one has just kicked off, as you've already mentioned, but not everyone's going to be aware of the previous um, iteration of research and the project that ran from 2017 till this year. Um, what is it that you have been looking at and, you know, what were you hoping to achieve at the beginning of that project? So I'll go back and start at the beginning, Liz. So um, I guess historically we've been used to three-year projects or yeah. even shorter and normally invested by the industry, i.e. through Dairy Australia. Dairy fee base at its onset was a bit of a different beast. So it probably has been, is the biggest feed-based research project in Australia, and that's not just from a funding perspective, but also for the duration over which it has run and now, albeit in a new guise, continues to run. So that's shifting from that three-year sort of idea to a five-year. And in doing that, 
it's really enabled us to develop larger projects with multiple components and with bolder, more innovative deliverables, targets, outcomes to be established. Another aspect was that it was about alignment with Dairy Bio. So Dairy Bio's, uh, let's say, our sister program that was already underway when we started Dairy Feedbase off. But where possible, we look at how the two programs can integrate, collaborate, add further value for the industry. Yeah. And so, you know, this project's the long-term projects are great. They just provide you with so much more that you can do. But uh, life has sort of thrown us a curveball over this last project for you, Joe. I think we could say. What Have you managed to achieve what you set out to achieve back in 2017 when you started? And, and certainly the last few years has, has been challenging, to say the least. But the research team, and when I say the research team, I mean that's the scientists and in particular the technical and farm staff have done an absolutely amazing job, you know, despite what's been thrown at us with with lockdowns, uh, quarantines, etc. We've still delivered. You know, experiments have still happened albeit with some very different management requirements. Results have been generated, scientific papers published and farmer-ready information produced. You know, some great examples of the challenges we faced. You know, I think back, Pasture Smarts at the outset had a farm in South Australia that we started measuring, and then we were unable to visit it for well over a year with border lockdowns. Um, dairy feed base itself has had teams spread out across Victoria, multidisciplinary teams, and these teams share equipment. So you can imagine the fun and games during COVID, moving this equipment around the state, the permits we needed for individual people to travel across the, um, I can't remember what it was called, the iron, I'll call it the iron curtain, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. The ring, ring of whatever. Um, ring of steel. Yeah, it? that's the one, yep. So permits and then um, the amount of changeovers that were done in servo car parks, you know, unhitching trailers and people not actually coming in direct contact. But I reckon the, the big one to me was really particularly what the technical and farm staff achieved at Ellenbank running research projects. You know, they, those staff didn't have the luxury of working from home. They were here day in, day out running experiments. We had to develop roster systems and zones on the farm. It was like, you know, the North Korea, South Korea with a demilitarized zone in the middle. It was yeah. unreal. Um, but they still managed to run experiments. Um, you know, at the time we had, I think it was 14-day quarantines if someone tested positive. But not only did they have to quarantine, mm -hmm. all their close contacts had to. So we had different rosters, you know, and never the two shall meet. So, yeah, it was challenging. Yeah, gosh, it seems like a world away now, doesn't oh, it, Joe? Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no, despite all of that, what are some of the outcomes? And I reckon what we might do is break it down by individual projects. So when we look at Dairy Feedbase, there are five key projects that sit under it. So there's the Future Forage Value Index, there's Pasture Smarts, there's Smart Feeding, there's First 100 Days, and then there's also Cool Cows. So when you look at those five different projects, as a team, what are you most proud of as the outcomes of each one of those five projects? 
I'll give you mine, but I'm sure the teams themselves would have many others that they could uh, talk around. And I guess over the course of time, Liz, you'll probably do podcasts with many of those if you haven't already, and each of them yep. they'll bring up, you know, specific things. But for me, uh, let, let's just walk through the project. So the um, the Forage Value Index or Future Forage Value Index. So at the start of Feedbase, you know, we did have this inkling of what a, an FEI, a Forage Value Index, would look like. But it hadn't really been fully formulated. So this project really led to the development of methodologies to calculate the economic benefits of additional yield and importantly have the same for quality parameters, in particular energy, ready to go. So that isn't part of it yet, but everything is ready as data becomes available. They work closely with the pasture trial network and also commercial partners. So you've got to think back that Meat and Livestock Australia, MLA, had sort of gone down the pathway of using this pasture trial network to start collecting data. And just thinking we could tap into it was a bit of a naive um, idea. It's taken a, an enormous amount of work, particularly by Kevin Smith and others, to really engage fully with the PTN and those commercial partners. They've, they've developed specific technologies to assess many pasture parameters using non-destructive technologies, so sensors. And they've rolled those out to the commercial partners as well. And I guess the legacy now is there's been a handover of a functioning FEI to Datagene that is now updated on a regular basis as more data comes to hand. That's great. And and that willing or oh, no, that ability for that FEI to be a little bit more um, flexible and provide more information is going to be so useful for farmers going forwards, really. Yeah, look, it is. And I guess maybe the other one I should add is um, – I think I'm still right in saying that apart from the the homepage on the DA website, it's the most um, most used sheet, whatever they're called on the DA website. So that that's a you know that's good. Yeah, it is, and that's a great uh, outcome. What about um, pasture smarts? Because that links a little bit with the um, future forage value index, doesn't it? Really. Look, it does. I mean, it flows through. So obviously, with the FEI, you're able to select the right ryegrass cultivars, but then pasture smarts has been very much around how do we how do we measure those in real time? Yeah. You know, how do we get information without necessarily um, farmers having to go out and measure each paddock? And we know there's been many, many iterations of um, different ways in which farmers have been told this is the best way to manage your pasture or measure your pasture. You know, um, we had gumboots with lines on many years ago. I can remember stubbies, um, plate meters, obviously. Yeah. And then, we, you know, we moved to, to a range of technologies. What the Pasture Smarts project has really done is it's implemented a range of ground-based aerial and satellite technologies to measure pasture biomass, leading to the ability to to really measure not just the amount in a paddock, but the variability across a given paddock in near real time. Um, it's also done the same sort of process to start understanding the variability in nutritive characteristics within a within the pasture, within a paddock. 
For me, one of the, the really endearing legacies is they've worked with multiple partner farms across the state. So Gibbsland, Southwest, Northern Victoria, and also don't forget the one in South Australia. And that's really enabled them to develop a really comprehensive global calibration data set, which, you know, there, there are other technologies in the marketplace. I don't believe any of them have got such a comprehensive data set sitting behind them. And then just, you know, for good measure, they've sort of finished off starting to test that calibration that's been done with perennial ryegrass, but with other species. So we've had a site here at Ellen Bank where they've been looking at species with different architectural canopies. So uh, a different grass, Coxford, looking at a clover, red clover, looking at chicory, and also a mixture of those. Just trying to see if those technologies are robust enough to hold up no matter what the pasture looks like. And um, two, we, you mentioned earlier talking to some of the researchers, we did talk with um, Liz and Anna, and that was a podcast that's just been released in June. So people will be able to go back and listen to that one, talking about what they have achieved within Pasture Smart. So, yeah. Now, one of the things that you did look at was um, trying to solve that holy grail of individual cow feeding in pasture systems under the Smart Feeding Program. What did you find there? Can you individually feed a cow under a pasture system like TMRs, Joe? Look, I, rec I reckon we're well on the way, Liz. Um, you know, and that is one of the one of the things that we've come to at the end of smart feeding. We've now got um, some. I'm going to call them models. Some are more simple equations, and there's a range of these that we think could work. We've still got to do some further testing, and that is probably one of the few things that's flowed through from the old fee base to the new one, but we'll come to that in a little while. I think for me, you know, one, one of the key things that's come out of feed, uh, smart feeding is just understanding the challenge of providing a, a uniform feed supply to a grazing herd. And particularly every time they visit the dairy and they come back, you know, um, the examples we've seen is that there's potentially for every hour a cow is delayed after the first cows have got back. So you think the first run in the dairy, get milked, come back to the paddock. By the time the last cows get back, every hour is almost costing a litre and a half of milk for each cow. And for big herds or herds with poorly functioning dairies, that's actually quite a significant amount of time. And it's not only the yield that changes. So you can imagine you're getting to the, back to the paddock a few hours later, a big proportion of the grass has gone and so has the quality within that grass. You know, the ME and the protein have dropped, the fibre's gone up. So these are sort of the challenges that this project has really looked to address and develop some simple options of how we, in effect, reallocate the same amount of feed in different ways. And they've certainly closed that gap. You know, that loss of a litre and a half, they've really closed that down to to, to make some you know, because some considerable um, inroads into what I perceive as losses for the farmer. Yeah, and I suppose the way to think about it is like if we're at a buffet, Joe, you, if we're a bit late getting to the buffet, we're left with the dodgy coals, cheese and the um, veggie sticks rather than the nice brie and the good crackers really, isn't it, for the cow yeah, when they get back to the paddock? 
That that's right, and I guess unlike being at a you know a smorgasbord or a buffet, there isn't someone bringing out a fresh tray of things. No, you know exactly. they've got what they've got, unless of course the farmer's got to go back out there and shift a fence or move the cows. Yeah, yeah, and that one and a half litres is a big amount mm. when you multiply yep. it out, particularly over our larger herds where they can be significantly impacted by that delay. Yes, next project. It's getting warmer. Climate's changing. Cool cows. How are we going to keep our cows cool? Can we feed our cows and keep them cool? Yeah, look, I, uh, I believe the project really come up with some options. So the project itself did look at a range of feed options that help alleviate some of those negative impacts on the animal and in particular on milk production from heat events. Uh, they looked at a range of feed options and they found a number of these to be beneficial but they all tended to work in slightly different ways. Some help maintain intake, so for example, feeding low fiber forages. Others help maintain milk production better, so things like fats, while others helped maintain body temperature, stop body temperature rising so much, so things like betaine. But also each of those had a slightly, dare I say, it's slight negative component to them. So if you feed fats, you get more milk, but you get a bit more heat generated. So, you know, so there's there's pros and cons. What really became apparent, though, is that the options also depend where your farm is located. So if you're in northern Victoria where you get, uh, and I, I don't like the term long, hot summer because all summers are the same, three months, but let's say you get a period of longer heat, high heat, um, your options may be very different to someone in southern Victoria or Tasmania where you get less of that prolonged heat, but you often get short, sharp heat events that can really have a negative impact on the herd. At the moment, that project's finalising a number of fact sheets, and I know, Liz, you and I have been involved in reviewing those many yep. times, um, and they they will look really succinctly put this information together, and we'll also have a, an overlay of some of the economics around each of those options. Yeah, exactly, and we have Joe, and they will be available really soon um, for farmers to have a look at and get themselves prepared for summer. Um, and one of the other things that last October we did a podcast where we talked about some of the work that's come out of Cool Cows um, and how people can, you know, make decisions um, around feeding their cows. But, you know, feeding their cows is just one small part of how to keep cows cool, really, ultimately. Um, so, yes. We're about to head into calving. I think, Ellen Bank, you're calving already um, for this season and anywhere that spring calving will start sort of soon and we'll be heading into calving real soon. First 100 days, the project the first 100 days was looking at nutrition of those cows for their first 100 days in milk and where, what impact nutrition can have in that space. What did you find and what can we use out of that? So, Liz, Liz you're right. We're knee-deep in calving here at Ellen Bank at the moment. Um, so, yes, it, the focus, as the name suggests, were the first 100 days, but it also broke that down into two components. One was that first 21 days after calving, then the remainder of the first 100 days, and then also looking how those nutritional interventions in the first 100 days did they carry through and did you get any benefit in the remainder of lactation? I guess the example I want to pick up here is one around that first 21 days, which obviously is a period where the cow has just calved. 
their appetite is still quite low, yet the metabolic load on the animal is very uh, increasing very rapidly. They've got to produce milk for a calf or, in theory, for a calf, um, and their whole uh, physiological state is changing rapidly. One of the key things we can do to help that animal is um, how do we get them eating quickly, up and going? And that also helps reduce some of those animal health issues we often see. So the team looked at a combination of cereal grains, maize grain, canola, along with different forage types during that period. And they found that adding maize grain along with high quality forages really helped the animal set them up for the remainder of lactation, got them up, getting their intake up very quickly. So by the end of that sort of 21 day period, these girls were almost up to their maximum intake which was really critical then to set them up. A key thing that was also shown from that was you can do all of that work, but if you go back to then a straight, say, wheat or a wheat barley, you can undo all of that great work as well. So if you're going to go to the to the cost and the effort to add things like maize grain early on, then you should be looking to continue feeding a, a grain mix such as a cereal plus canola meal. You don't need to keep maize in, but keeping that extra protein supplement like canola meal in. And um, those animals, that was worth potentially another $200 per cow by taking those uh, that pathway. So some really, some really big opportunities for farmers. And that's quite interesting. Out of each one of those projects that we've talked about there, there has been outcomes that farmers can implement on farm um, immediately. And, you know, we've mentioned that um, the researchers have been working with Dairy Australia staff to get um, things up and running so that we can implement these um, new research findings that you've got into the projects uh, and the various extension activities that come out of Dairy Australia. So I guess farmers will just have to keep an eye out for that and um, what can be immediately implemented on farm. We mentioned at the top of the episode that the last 12 months or so has been about combining and finishing off that sort of work, but there's also, we've you've started, like you and the research team have put a lot of time and effort into building up the new project, listening to what farmers want, um, and, you know, building this new project to really embrace where we are trying to get to um, as a feed-based um, research organisation um, going forward. How did you decide what you were going to focus on for this? Because there's so much you could be doing. Well, there's so much we could and so much we'd like to be doing, Liz. But um, look, it's been a really interesting journey. And look, in all honesty, it probably started, well, I'm going to say April last year, April 2022. There was plenty of discussions before then, but I think that was the point where Internally, we sat down. So internally, I mean within AgVic, um, we we sat down and and just really spent a day going through where we thought there were some really high priority areas. A lot of that was learnings from the previous feed base, areas that may not have necessarily started during that. That quickly moved towards um, discussions with both DA and Gardner and yourself, Liz. You were involved in some extensive farmer and industry consultation, which wasn't just in Victoria, but nationally. Mm. Um, and all of that sort of came together in a uh, industry stakeholder meeting in December, where a lot of research ideas, topics, thought processes were, were put there. And I think, well, Liz, we probably had, oh, I can't remember the size of the, the group there, but it was certainly a 
a powerful dairy group, let's say. Yes, I <laughs> and think there that's was some, a good description. Yep, there was some really good discussion, robust, challenging, um, very much challenged. Some people were very challenging back to the, uh, the research teams, but it also provided some clear direction to finalise the program, prepare the final business case, um, which really went to the respective boards sort of through late March, April into early May and got ticked off. Um, You know, we did, I think the original setting was a much larger program, but obviously it's still got to, you know, fit the cloth, so to speak. So there were things we'd still like to do now that are not currently part of this, but we haven't lost those. Yeah. So ultimately, not everything can be studied, as you just said. What exactly are you going to look at? What are the project titles that you're looking at? Yeah, so look, we... We've kicked off another five-year program, and it's based on six transformational projects that do address the priority areas in um, soils, forages, and animal nutrition. So just to note there, soils is part of this one. And it's considered these areas are critical for managing climate change, reducing dairy's impact on the climate and the environment, and also for stimulating an industry in, in productivity. So the projects, the first one, Dairy Soils, that's all about soil health and vitality and reduction of synthetic fertiliser use. Uh, Next one, resilient forages. That's really looking at different forages to perennial ryegrass, improving water and nutrient efficiency, and also persistence. The next one, measuring and enhancing intake. This is the one that sort of flows through from smart feeding, but is going to have a really big focus around that nutrient, nutritive aspect, as well as the dry matter. Uh, Next one, lifetime performance. This is very much around animal longevity and uh, reproductive reliability. Climate resilience, uh, very much in the methane emissions measurement and mitigation space. And the last one, sensing data into actionable insights, is really about how do we consolidate multi-data sources to provide better insights for on-farm decision-making. So let's break each one of those down a little bit so farmers can get an understanding of exactly what they can expect out of each one of them. One of the ones um, for me, which I think is quite interesting because is the Dairy Soils Project, because that soils hasn't been touched. I mean, there's probably been people out there researching dairy soils, but in a big way for quite a while. Um, And it's interesting the changing attitude that we've had to dairy soils over the last few years and around soil microbes and that. What are you hoping to find when you start looking at the dairy soils work and what are they going to be exactly looking at in this project? You mentioned synthetic fertilisers, but I know there's some really big words in that project proposal. (laughs) And what does that mean for farmers? (laughs) Yeah, you know, some of those words are too big for me as well, Liz. But look, <laughs> it, it, it really does cover a diverse diverse range of things to do with soil. So um, I, I guess if I was to put it into a single sort of sentence or two, it, it presents a mix of high to moderate research uh, risk with approaches around, as you said, reducing synthetic fertiliser. And, and here's one, improving the rhizosphere function and the use of next-gen um, 
technologies to recover nutrients. So it brings in the manure component as well. There's also a part around actually how do we better manage soil? So if you think about, we spoke on pasture smarts and using all of these non-destructive sensor technologies, can we do a similar thing for soils? So I guess it gives you just an inkling there. There is, there's quite a lot of range to this project. I think the one that always, um, I think, gets everyone's interest is when we talk about this rhizosphere and what do we mean by that? You know, so so part of this is um, to recognise that at the root scale, we've got air, water and a number of different nutrients all in a complex and variable matrix around the roots, the root hairs, the pores, mineral, mineral particles and the whole sort of organic uh, zone there. And the microorganisms working in that rhizosphere, and that's what we're talking around, and how they can better utilise nutrients. And this could be identifying new microorganisms within the rhizosphere. So there is this, um, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of exploratory um, identification of many of these microbes and which ones we can we can use to better affect. And that rhizosphere, that was one of the words I was talking about, which is basically, it's like the whole little world around the roots, isn't it? It, It's the whole world. And some of the work that's going on there is quite interesting around, you know, what microbes are there? Can they affect how we use our synthetic fertilisers and the like? It's it's really quite an interesting little bit of work. Um, What is it that you're expecting farmers to be able to maybe implement or better understand when they finish this soils work in five years? Do you? So, and and let's be really clear clear there. When this finishes in five years, there will still be a lot of information flowing from this that, you know, won't necessarily be ready on day one of year six for farmers, uh, will flow through. But, you know, the sort of thing that Dairy Soils is looking to develop is a range of products. Some of those for direct use on dairy farms. Um, so they could be things like management protocols, maps, models, Um, development of novel sensor technologies that can give some real-time measurement of soil and nutrient characteristics within the soil. And, you know, the the ideal one here would be this development of next-generation fertilisers and also, you know, the opportunity around novel biologicals. So that's really that part of understanding that microsystem within that rhizosphere. Yeah, and that's Really, it's going to be interesting. I think, watch this space. Um, one of the other areas that is quite different for this project is the mixed swar- uh, species swards that you're looking at under resilient forages. Um, when we did that consultation with farmers and service providers, it was one of the areas of interest that stood out. Um, farmers were quite interested in, you know, is mixed species something that works? Um, does it? you know, is it going to be useful on my farm and the like? Do you think you'll be able to answer that question as the research goes on? Absolutely, Liz, absolutely. Great, Joe. You know, so so obviously we, and again, I'm going to say this from a, a Southern Australian perspective, but we've got a huge reliance on ryegrass, particularly perennial ryegrass, but the ryegrass species in general. And uh, we're certainly now seeing a lot of questions around how well it is functioning in a very variable climate. And yes, acknowledging the last couple of years have been relatively kind, um, this one may not be coming up. Um, This project will undertake a 
in effect, a comprehensive investigation of multi-species forages. Um, so can they improve farm sustainability? Can they produce equal or greater amounts of pasture? How does that fit into a feeding system? Um, the initial focus will be around perennial forage options, and I'm well aware that there are many farmers interested in this space who are, who are also using annual options. That's not to say the project may not go there, but it started off with perennials. And in fact, the first studies were sown at Ellenbank and Hamilton in autumn this year, so going back a few months now. And in fact, those ones, you know, we, we really, or I say we, Anna, Thompson really bit the bullet and um, we've put in 12 species mixes. So these are four grasses, four legumes and four herbs, um, all in different ranges or, or in different proportions. So there's actually, um, there's a perennial ryegrass control. There's a, we call a standard mix, which has got an even amount of the grasses, the legumes and the herbs. Then there's a mix that's got a greater amount proportionally wise of grass, one of legumes and one of herbs. So they're all, I say, busy trying to establish at the moment. Um, yeah, they're, they're there. They're getting going. How is, how is establishment going? Because that can be one of the drawbacks. Yeah, so we've got three sites. One of them is exceptional, and it's probably the one that, to be honest, I least expected would be the best, and it is. Wait, wait. Okay. Um, the others, uh, the others have got some weed challenges, but we're working through those. Yeah, uh, they're there, they're establishing, and you've got to note that some of these species are a bit slower to get up and going. And, you know, and that's one of the challenges moving away from something that generally is a pretty robust species in ryegrass. Yeah. Yeah. With beyond, you know, we'll so sorry, Liz. So oh, so I will say here, you know, these these plots that we've put in are actually large enough to graze. So we're not talking, you know, those classic little three meter by five meter or smaller type plots that you can only manage with a lawnmower. These are actually big enough to put animals on to graze them when they're ready to graze. And then where we'll platform from there is into much larger areas where ultimately we can un undertake some animal productivity work. And so that means that whatever you find in terms of outcomes will be directly applicable. Exactly. Like it doesn't have another step before it becomes applicable to farm. Exactly. We won't have this debate around, but that was with a lawnmower, what will a dairy cow do? Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is great because that's what we, we need. Um what else are you hoping to get out of it for our future forage base for the resilient project? Resilient so the other, the other, yeah, the other component this project will be looking at is um, can we actually measure persistence better and earlier? So you know, at the moment, persistence is normally described when a paddock starts losing the species you sowed, and we say, "Oh, it lacks persistence. We need to do something with it." So this one's very much around: what are some of these sensor technologies we can use very early that give us key indicators that a a pasture may struggle for persistence? And again, the focus here isn't isn't about getting an extra year at the end of its life. It's about an extra year when it's most productive, which is quite a different thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, they, may, they may actually, if we get an extra year at its productive peak, then it makes sense to put it back into something as soon as that peak declines. We've got the value. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that's more where you're trying to get more out of the pasture and extend the 
extend for at least, you're talking a year, is that right, Joe? Yeah, at least a year. So I I look at it this way, Liz, if we can get a year, and I'll take Ellen Bank as an example, if we can get a year where we get another 14 tonnes of pasture, that's fantastic as opposed to waiting till it's already on the decline and saying, how do we get an extra year out of something that might only grow eight or nine tonnes now? Yeah, and that... That 14 tonnes or that extra, what would you say, eight to nine, so that's what five, maybe six tonne extra makes a huge difference across a whole yep. farm. Yep. Um, exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and and it doesn't matter whether it's perennial ryegrass or your mixed species stuff as well, I'd imagine. It, yep. All your grass is cheaper. So, yes. Um, so if we have a look then at the um, Climate resilient Resilience Project, what are you hoping will happen um, and what's different in this space to what's been researched before? So the focus of the Climate Resilience Project will be very much around the, the enteric methane space. How can we mitigate enteric methane? And look, there's there's been little bits of work well, programs over the last decade or so that have looked at uh, methane mitigation, particularly in the dairy industry, that the majority of which has been led here out of Ellenbank. But most of those have looked um, at options that have relatively minor mitigation potential. You know, we've clearly seen over the last few years that there are a number of products that are either entering the market or about to enter the market that when they've been tested in feedlot or total mixed rations, have shown 50% plus mitigation potential. But we don't know how they work in a dairy pasture-based system. And yes, there's been a little bit of work here and there on commercial properties. So the example I could give is asparagopsis, so the red seaweed we all hear about. I know that it's been tested on some properties down in Tasmania, but they haven't measured methane mitigation, they've been more focused on product integrity and product quality, which is obviously very important. So this project is very much about understanding what is the potential of some of these products like asparagopsis, like 3-nitroxypropanol, and a range of other ones that are either close to entering the market or we need to understand more about. And when I say need to understand more, you know, that that's very much around um, not only what's their mitigation potential, are there production benefits? So if we're reducing methane, does that mean there's energy available for production? Uh, are there any impacts on animal health? Are there product efficacy issues? And again, if I think about the work in the feedlot, you know, animals in a feedlot are, are there for relatively short periods compared to what we want a dairy cow to be around for. So we really need to understand both that health of the animal and product efficacy questions. With um, with those products, like there's also um, I was talking. Um, Matt Schaefer from Data Gene the other day, and he was talking about the sustainability index and the um, methane emissions ABV. I'm probably going to be getting that one wrong. Um, and, you know, is there work where you'll be looking at, you know, the impact of that as well on your cows? So the the other part of the Climate Resilience Project, and this one will work, okay, it's a great example of working closely with Dairy Bio, is, um, and we're calling it sort of phenotyping at scale. Uh, 
So we've got a lot of good data out of Ellen Bank. Um, we know that there is a range in methane emissions across our herd. How can we use that as a platform to identify animals with low methane emissions? And um, again, these are figures I found. So if I get them slightly wrong, don't crucify me. But um, currently, the reliability of breeding values such as that for methane have got quite a low heritability, about 0.2, yep. um, with recent estimates of reliability of about 10%. And that's based on a very small um, population. If we had a larger reference population, it might be possible to reach reliabilities of around 60%, which then makes it acceptable as a breeding value in its own right, so a low methane breeding value. As you pointed out, currently it's part of this sustainability index. So what we're looking here is can we can we identify, work with partners around identifying sensors that we can test and calibrate and know they work well. So we've got all our research equipment here that we know we can see how well a, a new sensor works, but have sensors that we have the potential to deploy onto commercial farms and collect a lot of phenotypic information around methane emissions. Maybe potentially, uh, again, working with Dairy Bio, identify some metabolomic markers from biological samples that can further add value to identify low and high methane emitting animals. Obviously, with the view that this will flow through to the development of a low methane breeding value. Yeah. With, um, with that, before we go too much further, phenotyping. Describe what is when you say you're going to phenotype an animal. What what do you mean? What are you doing? So I look at it that the phenotyping is around the animal's characteristics itself. So it's biological makeup, how it responds to the environment. Whereas the the genotyping is then its its DNA, its genes. So you need the two to understand how an animal responds to a change and then understanding what's its genetic makeup to understand why it would respond in that way. Yeah, and that's what you'll be looking at with the herd and, you know, trying yep. to achieve yep. the methane stuff. And we've got some great examples in that space, how the two two teams have worked together. So the, you know, the heat tolerance breeding value, the feed feed saved breeding value. The yeah. phenotyping work was done here at Allenbank. Yep. The genotyping work was obviously done through our colleagues at AgriBio. Yeah, and that's the thing. These research projects don't work by in isolation, do they? No. Oh, yes. Um, so you said before this is about um, feed, soil and nutrition, animal nutrition. Um, we've done a little bit on feed. We've done a little bit on soil. What's happening in the nutrition space then, Joe? So I mentioned that um, the measuring and enhancing intake project uh, will build on the smart feeding outcomes. So if you remember, smart feeding was about individual cow intake, better allocation of the same amount of feed resources. Uh, and obviously, we've made we made some really good inroads in that space, but there's a little bit of work to, to test the models that were developed up uh, in smart feeding. So that'll be one of the initial components we do there. Uh, I guess where we'll move from there is then also, um, can we better understand some of the nutritive characteristics of that pasture. 
If we can do that in near real time, and this is sort of building on some of the technologies Pasture Smart started using, not only will we understand the dry matter intake part, but the nutrient intake, and can we then use that to almost tailor supplementation down to the individual animal to optimise nutrient intake across the herd? Yeah, and so you said earlier that individual cow intake is possible yep. on, past- on pasture, we should yep. clarify. Yep. Not, I mean, Look, TMR, that's how it's done. But ex- ex- yeah, experimentally we can do it now, but obviously the techniques we use in an experiment are not going to be applicable on a commercial farm. Yep. But what we can do is understand the key parameters that influence intake. And after all, a cow's intake is probably one of the simplest formulas you'll ever get. Dry matter intake equals how many bites the cow takes and what's the size of the bites. We can measure the number of bites. It's the size of them that's the challenge because they are not consistent. So we're looking at other ways to, in effect, act as a surrogate for that part of that that equation. Interesting. One of the other areas that you're looking at is our next generation cows. So we all know the only time yeah, our heifers are going to start paying us back is when they get to their second lactation. It's vital to get her there um, and beyond. And we have to grow our heifers well um, and put the time and energy into them to, you know, make sure they get there. The lifetime production project that you're working on, what is that looking at for how we can improve our heifers that are going to be entering our future herd? Yeah, and and Liz, this was probably one of the projects that's probably caused some of the greatest conjecture in its development because there's really some quite differing views across the industry. But I think you you sort of encapsulated it there that calf rearing heifer replacement is probably one of the costliest outlays for a dairy farm business. You know, that period from birth until they actually drop their first calf um, it's a non-productive period of the cow. They're not producing milk and at a very conservative number, and I reckon this number's way higher now, you know, we're talking probably upwards of $2,000 per animal. Yep. Um, so if we're going to sink that sort of cost, we need to make sure that when they do enter the herd, we've got some surety that they're set up for a, a good lifetime of reproductive performance and milk production. And that's, you know, the real premise that we put behind this project. And I think we've esti- it's been estimated that sort of between 30 and 35% of replacement heifers either die or are cold before their second calving. You know, so that that is a huge sunk cost. Yeah, that is. So, so that, that, yeah, that's the sort of challenge sitting there. Um, how we're going to tackle this? So one of the things that we've... Um, we've had recently is we've had Emma Ockenden just finishing her PhD. In fact, she did her final seminar last week and she's planning to submit by the end of the month. And um, she took a group of calves and fed them different amounts of milk. You know, so the standard industry, four litres a day type thing. She also fed another cohort, eight litres a day. So we ended up getting to the, uh, the weaning period with two groups of animals of very different body weights. More importantly, she also did immune challenges on these animals. So that's basically injecting an antigen and looking at the antibody response. So looking at a range of blood parameters. And what what she showed pre-weaning was that those that were fed more milk 
had a higher immune response. That continued through their next sort of period of time up to getting towards where they are now, just entering the herd at Ellenbank. So we saw there were some of those immune response parameters that persisted from that early uh, life, early, you know, pre-weaning nutrition. What we're going to do now is those animals are entering the herd and we will continue to follow those through. So we'll still post-calving, we'll do an immune response test. Obviously, we'll look at what their animal, their performance is, their milk production, but also do they get back in calf? Now, I know we're talking a relatively small number of animals. There's 80, num 80 animals, so 40 that got normal milk, 40 that got higher milk. But it'll give a good indication as to whether there's actually something here uh, that will then act as a bit of a platform to say, well, this is actually an important area. We've got some good data here. Acknowledging there's work being done overseas, but interestingly, a lot of the work overseas has been done primarily with male calves. So it's been very much around growth rates. So it is an area where there's some conjecture. And as I say, certainly some really robust discussion. Um, but we'll look at these animals. And the other part of this is, one of the things First 100 Days did was with, with multi-parous animals, so multi-lactation multi animals, was looked at a range of blood parameters to see if these could provide an indication as to whether this animal was going to be susceptible to health issues and have a reasonable reproductive performance. And working with John Morden, who I'm sure many of the listeners would know, uh, the team developed up a bit of a, a model that can identify from a blood test animals that could be susceptible. And we're hoping we can take that through to milk as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll test that with heifers in the herd this year at Ellenbank and see if it holds. And what we don't know is because an, a heifer, in effect, is a slightly underdeveloped animal, it hasn't hit its full mature weight yet, it might be different. It might be the same, but it's important to understand that as well. Yeah. Um and that work, and I, it, you know, there is a lot of discussion around that, particularly, I suppose, from a farmer perspective. If you mentioned feeding eight litres of um, milk to a car, to a farmer, they might be like, why that much milk? Yep. Um, but um, Emma's work has has shown there is, a, like, they do, wean, she weaned on age, um, and those calves were much heavier and that and didn't matter what the management was post weaning, they still had that higher immune response, didn't yep. they? Yep. And obviously, yeah. if that flows through and manifests itself as greater milk production, animals that get in calf easier, yes, you know, it costs more to feed, feed them four liters extra. Um, milk's more expensive than grain. So, you know, got all of these things to weigh up, but ultimately, understanding that full picture, not just what we do in their first 100 days, what happens right through, I'm sure the benefits will far outweigh the costs. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be interested to see where they all end up, those heifers, and whether they all do get back in calf, Joe. Yep, that's the big that, one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's driven by a whole heap of other stuff as well, really, isn't yep. it? So, yes. Um, so one of the things you are collecting a bunch of data. Let's just say that you've got you've mentioned sensors. I reckon if I had a bingo card, I reckon you've mentioned sensors about 20 times already. Um sensors equal a lot of data. 
And, you know, one of the things is how are you going to manage all that and what are you going to do with that um, so that it actually becomes useful? You're right, Liz. Um, all of these projects will continue to use sensors and various ag tech, um, which means there'll be huge amounts of data generated. Now, there's benefits in taking that approach. I mean, if it means less destructive sampling, that's, you know, less disturbance of soils in plots, um, less gaps in the pasture because we've had to take samples. So that's good. But also there's a reduced stress on animals um, and a maintenance of high animal ethics. So if we can use sensors to get key measurements rather than necessarily take um, intrusive samples, that's fantastic. Yeah. So sensors do have a place, don't get me wrong. Um, but once that data is collected, the projects will use their own data. But then um, this final project we'll look to see how they can integrate all of that data into meaningful um, meaningful outcomes for farmers to make more informed decisions is probably the best way to look at it. Yep. We know data integration will continue to be a challenge for the industry. And this project does aim to develop an integration analysis framework um, for all of that digital data that be, can, can be collected on the farm. And let's bear in mind, modern dairies collect a multitude of data, much of which may not be fully utilised by the farmer. You know, we talked about analogies earlier with the, uh, the buffet. I look at the way I use my computer software here. I can, I can type a document, but that's about all I understand in Word. And when it comes to Excel, don't get me started. There are many things I've got no idea. So I probably use a small percentage of the capacity of my software. Mm -hmm. The same could be applying for many farmers. So this project is around, you know, what's the opportunity to show a pathway to, to integrate data? It'll rely on working closely with DataGene. It'll rely working closely with um, international collaborators in the same space. But I think the key thing for me is this area, the previous feed-based project, has shown it can be done. So the cool cows had partner farms. Pasture Smarts had partner farms. The team developed some fantastic, and I'm going to call them data pipelines, that collected data on from the partner farm and integrated into a really powerful data set to, to look at some key things. So we know it can be done. Obviously, parts of this are going to be highly reliant on commercial partners with technologies coming to the party and sharing data, which that's probably the biggest question I have with the project. How many of them may be willing to do that? Yeah. Yeah, because that is one of the things is, you know, everyone has their own platform and getting them all yep. to talk to each other. Is that even possible, I suppose, is one of the things you'll have to explore, really, won't, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, now, look, Dairy Feedbase is, um, you know, looking at not the only project that is looking at feed and nutrition and soils. Um, there's number of them across Australia. So you've got Dairy High in Tasmania, you've got Dairy Up in New South Wales, C4 Milk in Queensland. There's some soils work with the Melbourne uh, University of Melbourne. How are you planning on working with those other projects or, you know, not doubling up on everyone else's work? So obviously a key activity will be ensuring that these different programs are talking, 
sharing data, hopefully, and adding value to each other. And, you know, there's already good examples. So if I take the resilient forages space, I know that Anna's talking with the TR guys in Tassie. Yes. I know she's talking with Melbourne Uni with Helen Suda. So, they're, they're, you know, there's some good interactions already starting, but there's much more that can be done. And while my, I'm sure my teams will be talking with their interstate counterparts, I'd have to say also that Dairy Australia are going to play a key role in this facilitation and engagement. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they're the common denominator across them all. Yeah. They're the one that's investing in each of these programs. They've got the better insight into what's happening. Um, so... Maybe that question is a good one for DA as well, Liz. <laughs> well, I'm sure it is. And, look, there will be ways that we all work it out and make sure that everyone is, um, you know, sharing and, you know, not doubling up because it makes the best use of levy money. Um, now, look, Joe, we have chatted for a little while now and it's been great. It's been quite a big flyby of both dairy feed-based projects and there is so much um, more that we could go into and, you know, spend individual time on each project. And we sort of have done that with some previous podcasts and, you know, stuff in the future. But in the coming months, people will be able to see and hear more about this results um, through the Dairy Innovation Newsletter, um, which is published by the Victorian Dairy Innovation Agreement. Um, so there'll be links to that in the show notes. Um, but also, Joe, we probably should recognise that this is funded not only by Dairy Australia, but also by Agriculture Victoria and also by Gardner Foundation, this research project. So it's a joint, uh, joint venture agreement there. Um, so, yeah, but thank you, Joe, for chatting to me. Hopefully we'll be able to hear regularly what's going to happen over the next five years as um, all your research happens and you implemented on farm. So thanks, Joe. My pleasure, Liz. And as I think they always say, come on down to the farm and see what's happening. So the doors are open. People are welcome. Yes, yes, that's right. Anytime. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Joe. If you would like to find out more about the Dairy Fee-Based Research Program, visit www.dairyaustralia.com.au and search for Dairy Feedbase. This is one word. We have also placed a link into the episode notes. We hope that you have enjoyed this DairyPod episode, and if you have any suggestions or ideas for how we can improve this program, can you please get in touch with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now.